You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing, where our team of journalists analyze the most important events of the day within the framework of key Real Vision themes. That's macro, liquidity, market structure, and crypto. We cover it all. Hi, I'm Nick Correa for Real Vision. It's Tuesday, April 7th, 3.30 p.m. in North Arlington, New Jersey, where I'm reporting from. We have Ash Bennington and Ed Harrison standing by for their market analysis. But before we go to them, let's take a quick look at the latest news and data on the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Globally, the total confirmed case count is at 1.38 million, set to surpass 1.5 million over the next two days. The global number of deaths stands at 79,000, with GMI forecasting this count to get up to 100,000 deaths by Friday. A very grim milestone. However, it's not all bad news. The death rate does appear to be slowing, as is the growth of daily active cases. And in a press briefing this morning, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo offered some additional reasons for hope. And right now we're projecting that we are uh, reaching a plateau in the total number of hospitalizations. And you can see the growth and you see it starting to flatten. This is good news for New York, but the state's number of active cases remains well above the GMI forecast. In Europe, the active number of cases is beginning to plateau. But with Spain, Germany, and France well behind Italy, we likely haven't seen a true peak yet. In other news, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in intensive care unit, receiving treatment for severe coronavirus symptoms. He is not on a ventilator, but he is receiving oxygen. Despite its head of state in critical condition, the British market had a good day, with the FTSE 100 making a small rally. This mirrored the morning gain seen in the U.S. market, which actually ended down on the day after an afternoon sell-off. Now let's go to Ash Bennington and Ed Harrison for their market analysis. Ash Bennington for Real Vision with Ed Harrison, Managing Editor and DC Bureau Chief. Welcome, Ed. Good to talk to you, Ash. Ed, I don't know what else to say except here we go again. So today, markets are up. Uh, you know, we're shooting midday here, you know, 1% to 2% on the Dow and the S&P. Um, you know, you look at the you look at the uh, the the rises here since close of uh, trading on Friday. We're looking at a, about 10 percent on the S and P uh, and about uh, and about 11 percent on the Dow. You know, this is against a backdrop of just relentlessly negative news flow. You know, the one thing that that stuck out at me today was there's a poll that comes out of the Financial Times. 73 percent of Americans, 73 percent now say the pandemic has reduced their family's income. And nearly half of them say they're going to be without any income at all if they're unable to work uh, during uh, due to illness. And, um, you know, the, the really shocking number for me was that this is 71 uh, percent of families who have six-figure incomes. These people with good incomes are in, are in this situation. And on a more somber note, this is the, you know, the highest uh, death toll in, in New York City was was yesterday. Uh, that brings us to more than 3,000 deaths. And, and that that's actually more people that died on 9-11. So this is really a somber moment here in the city and, and in the country. And, and, you know, with that... Uh, <sighs> It's really hard to know how to throw this off to you, Ed, but what, what are you thinking? What are you looking at? Well, you know, uh, 
I'm thinking about uh, what Roger was talking about to me last week in terms of retracement. You know, there's a Fibonacci. When you take a um, curve, uh, you have a 38%, you have a 50%, and then you have a 61.2%, 61.8%. He, uh, he was talking about those levels, you know, for the S&P, and I think that it makes sense. When you think about where we were, we went to the 38% retracement level last week, and it seemed like there was a little bit of hesitation around that level when we grew. As soon as we got to this week, boom, we were off to the races. And we're still not yet, if you can believe it, at the 50% 50, 50 retracement from the, the uh, top to the bottom of the S&P. So we almost reached 3,400 at the top, and we went down to a 2,175 level. So we're looking at a 2,780 as the 50% uh, retracement, and then we will go to get a 61.8%, which is probably a 29.20 on the on the. I think those are the levels that you know potentially you could see in sort of a uh, a full retracement. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're uh, in a new bull market that 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 has legs that's going to last. So. I think a lot of this is technical in nature. Uh, people right. still are buying the dip. But if you think about sentiment, it's interesting because Mark Dow uh, on Twitter, he just released a poll. I think it was like 10 minutes ago. And the the question was, uh, where do you see the S&P going from here? So he said, where is SPX going? And there were four answers. One was uh, it's it's going to break uh, uh, higher from here. I think the second answer was something like it was going to break. Uh, um, it wasn't going to get below the low for like April the third or something. And then the th uh, the the last one was the low, the 75 low. And then finally, it's going to break below that 25 number. And interestingly enough. The more bearish uh, the answer was, the more people answered yes. When I last looked at it, this was you know only 10 minutes ago, there was like 40 percent said below 21.75. So I don't know what that says, but it says that are still out there who are also in disbelief, just as you are, and uh, eventually the numbers in. Economy will will shine through. Yeah, you know, the, you bring out a, a good point, which is I, I spoke to a hedge fund manager yesterday who said, look, markets are just not efficiently or effectively discounting news flow. And your suggestion is that what we're looking at here is is technical factors uh, that are causing some of the some of the gyrations and wiggliness and the prices that we're seeing. And there is a, a great deal of obviously of, of momentum, uh, especially compared to the cycle that we've been coming out of, obviously, with a huge flood of central bank liquidity. You know, and I have to tell you, I've been I've been reading every day um, the uh, your credit write downs newsletter, and I found it Im immensely helpful in understanding the the, the general framework. One of the things that you've been writing about uh, is the potential relaxation. Uh, of the uh, crisis response or the crisis lockdown due to coronavirus around the world. What are you thinking about that? When you look out at the world, who are you seeing that are good models, bad models, and what do you think it suggests, perhaps, for the United States? So, yeah, that uh, great question. And, and also, this could, if you think about it from a fundamental perspective, this could explain the so-called optimism 
I really think that it's um, it's uh, you know the the bots, if you will, that you know the the program trading that are trading up to certain levels. And you know, as you said, you mentioned the word momentum, but let's just say that it's a fundamental, uh, and that people are thinking about the backside response in a positive way. You know, because the way that we were modeling it out yesterday, we were talking about you know best case scenario, base case, and then worst case scenario. So the best case scenario is what I would call the New Zealand uh, scenario. So New Zealand, I believe, had their first coronavirus case on February the 27th, which is, is after the U.S. They went lockdown, full lockdown, not just partial lockdown, but the whole place. And, uh, you know, bar restaurants open, no takeout, nothing uh, on the 13th of March. And so they are uh, going for another uh, weeks. Or no, maybe I got that wrong. It was the... 5th of March that they went into. So they have two weeks now, and they're going to have two more weeks, and then uh, we'll see what happens with them. Uh, they have had literally one death associated with coronavirus, and they've had 1,000 cases total over, the, over the, the whole period of time. So that is the model. If they can get on the backside of this and prevent a second wave, that's a country that will have gone four weeks of loss and then back to normal as long as they can prevent the second wave. Now, uh, when you look at the Nordic countries, there are two models there to think about. Uh, one is closer to the other is not as close to New Zealand. Uh, Denmark, which has about five people just like uh, New Zealand, their case count is about double. Uh, they have deaths, but still, nonetheless, they're looked at as a model locking down. They're talking about relaxing the lockdown just uh, in a stage, a stepwise fashion. First, primary schools, and then later, if that works, they're going to move to further, uh, you know, re uh, loosen it. And so they've done a fairly good job. They were early to lock down, and they're early to go out. Sweden, on the other hand, they didn't lock down at all. They basically said, you people, we trust you to use your best judgment. And now, we see their death counts are mushrooming. Uh, they have over 500 now, but they had 100, literally 140 in the last day. So you can see in one day alone, they had 20 percent. And so this is this is escalating upward. So that gives you sort of the the uh, what I would call the best case is New Zealand. The uh, base case or the reasonably good case is Denmark, and sort of, I, I would say, the, the bad case, uh, but a base case, is Sweden. Uh, the U.S. is likely on the, on the low end of the, the Swedish side. I would say that we are probably worse than Sweden. Uh, so in some ways, you, you should expect, uh, you know, two to three months at a minimum of rolling uh, lockdown and lockdown release. You know, this is so interesting. This was the, the one of the phenomena we talked about yesterday, how it doesn't really quite feel real until it's happening to you. I talked to a friend last night from Sweden who lives here in New York. And, uh, you know, he has been reading the Swedish language newspapers and he was expressing this just this sense of frustration of looking on and saying, you know, my God, we know it's coming. I can look out my window and see it. And yet there's just that inability to for people across the world to visualize or understand or really feel what happens until it's actually 
actually happening in their neighborhood. And and I can tell you here, as someone who's in New York, which is obviously the epicenter of the crisis, when it starts happening to people you know and your friends' parents, it takes on a completely different tone, a completely different feel. And um, your willingness to want to shut things down and endure economic hardship to save lives really does start to grow dramatically when this starts hitting really close to home. Well, but, uh, you know, of course, by that time, it's too late. I mean, if you look right. at the curves in Italy as an example, because that's the model, the, the bad model uh, that everyone's thinking about. Uh, if you look at the, the curve in terms of the number of new cases and the, uh, the total cases, I mean, it goes up and it looks like it's going to go up exponentially like that. And then they lock down. It's still going up like that, but only, you know, a week into lockdown, it starts to roll over. Now right. it started to roll over because they've been in lockdown for uh, two or three weeks. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the carnage that it's, that it's wrought as a result is far superior to what it would have been had they been the bullet and, you know, looked at the invisible enemy and, you know, taken precautions early, which they didn't do, which right. we in the United States didn't do either. So that, that's what we're that's what awaits us. Yeah, and that's the concern for the Swedish model. You, you know, it's it's really interesting. You mentioned the New Zealand model. Uh, Dan Moorhead, the Pantera Capital, was on talking to Ral about this, and Dan's response was sort of what you were saying: is like, let's just bite the bullet, take the draconian response, shut everything down for two weeks, and really break the chain, interrupt the transmission cycle, break it. You know, you take a four percent hit to GDP, and he just divided out the number of weeks, right? And uh, and and let's get this done with. Let's figure out a way to stop it. But uh, you know, it does get... Let me tell you that that number you you pointed out was good because the the Danish are talking about the Danish central banks at ten percent. That was what their their initial estimate was. Now that they've done a good job, you know the upside estimates are like three point five percent hit to GDP. So right on target with what you're talking about. Minus three percent from trend. Uh, yeah, exactly. So there, I mean, three percent is a, is a long way down, three and a half percent, but yeah. it's not ten percent. It's not twenty percent. Right, and the, and say we know that we're seeing some numbers that are unfortunately in the double digits and and pretty grim. You know, something that I saw today that also caught my eye in terms of one of the the drivers of global GDP contraction. Uh, there's an agency called the International Labor Organization. It's one of the UN umbrella uh, international groups, and they're predicting a six point seven percent reduction in uh, global worldwide working hours. Uh, and you know th that number sounds 6%, it's hard to visualize. But the number that really struck me was that on a full-time worker-adjusted basis, that's 195 million workers globally leaving the workforce. Yeah. Just a stunning number, and it's you know when you compare that to something that sounds abstract like six point seven percent, you know, and this is sort of what you were talking about before, right? Getting a sense of the difference between three percent contraction versus ten percent contraction. These sound like small percentage shifts, but this is a massive, massive difference in human lives. Oh yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, you know, when you think about uh, when people talk about recessions and people graduating into recessions and they look back, you know, 20 or 30 years at how well you did in terms of your life earnings, uh, they, people who graduated into the recession do worse by an order of magnitude compared to right. people 
who graduate into uh, booming economies. So if you're graduating yeah. over, into over their lifetime, that's the that's over the point. their lifetime. Such a critical point. Yeah, not just over the short yeah. term. These have lasting effects that they linger over the entire lifetime of these people. And you know, by the way, I saw uh, yesterday a Japanese. Um, it was a Japanese ceremony. Uh, and they had pictures like, you know, it was like a, 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 a iPad on top of, uh, you know, a, a mannequin. And then there was a picture of the person who was getting their diploma because they were quarantined and they couldn't do it. That's that's what these people are going into. So those people are due to be taking a hit for their entire lifetime. It's really an extraordinary point, Ed, and such an important one, and, and hard to sort of comprehend that the, the time that you graduate in an economic cycle has an impact on the rest of your life. And the difference between success and failure may just be, you know, the year you happen to be born. Yeah, I, I, it, is, it is frightening, but it, unfortunately, it's true. And, uh, and that's why it's incumbent upon uh, policymakers to make decisions at times like these, at crises time, that can be the difference between in Denmark 3.5 and 10%. In the case of the United States, probably more like you know 5% and 25%. Right. So you know we're talking about huge differentials uh, for people in a, 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 a huge cohort of people graduating into that. Right. You know, another thing that I saw talking about things that really impact people's lives, this is relatively new data. So forbearance requests, this is requests for mortgage forbearance, meaning the late payments, grew by 1,200% uh, the week of March 2nd. Uh, and, uh, and then they jumped another 1,800, I'm sorry, 1,896, so another nearly 1,900% between the week of March 16th uh, and the week of March 30th. This is just, I mean, this is, I mean, thousands of percents. This is a hundredfold type of, of activity here that we're seeing in forbearance requests. And, 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 and an additional note that I saw in this study is that it's increasingly difficult for borrowers to get through to their lenders to actually make the request because the websites are crashing and the phones are just ringing. And you know, what's interesting about that is I saw a study that came out in terms of uh, forbearance versus uh, non-payment on, on renters. And mm -hmm. what they found is, interestingly enough, it was a four to one ratio of renters not paying their rent compared to uh, mortgages not being paid. So immediately my mind thought to CMBS versus RMBS, residential versus commercial mortgage-backed securities, because, you know, the CMBS, we had this huge wave of, uh, you know, people who were like hedge funds and the like, who were getting into commercial property after the bust that we saw in 2008, 2009. So all of these rental properties are have been, uh, they've been collectivized into back security, securitized and, and brought out. Those things are getting non-payment on a level that is much worse than mortgage-backed securities. And we already know that Fannie and Freddie are right. potentially for a, uh, a bailout because of the losses that they might take. So what does that say about CMBS versus RMBS? I think that's an interesting avenue. I don't have a view and I don't know it intricately enough, but I think that that's a, an interesting point to make. If you can't make a payment, 
uh, are you more likely to not pay on your uh, mortgage or your rent? And who's paying their mortgage? It sounds to me like there's there's a selectivity issue there. Right. That mortgages uh, are people who are not being hit as hard as as renters. So well, the other possibility, I guess, is that you know you 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 if your house gets foreclosed upon, you lose the equity that you may have built up over decades. Whereas your worst case in a rental scenario, obviously, is damage to the credit. But your worst case is eviction. So you you know you drop the keys in the mailbox and you and you head out, right? So the the damage to your financial life could be, especially if they're younger people, could be much less significant than someone who's you know been paying a mortgage for twenty five years. You're gonna do everything you can not to lose that equity. And, and on top of that, you know, like in the state where I am, I think that they already mandated no evictions during the lockdown. So, you know, this is the perfect time if you're having distress to not pay. And so people are not paying. You know, the important point, I, I had uh, Logan Mahachmi on this morning who was talking about this and was saying, look, the, the important thing for people to remember is if you can pay your rent, if you can pay your mortgage, you should do so. This is not a holiday. You're going to have to pay that back right. in the yeah. future. So if you can make those payments, make the payments. And as you say, if you're legitimately under distress, well, then you've got to do what you have to do. Seek forbearance, talk to, you know, talk to the landlord and see what you can work out. You know, this isn't exactly um, uh, linear in terms of the conversation we're having, but I, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the fact that we're recording this at just after like two o'clock or so, and the uh, you know that's not when the market closes. We have the the luxury of being able to do that. The market's up like two two and a half percent now, but in the future it could be up much more or could be down more. The, the volatility at the end of the day is yeah. much greater. So my question is, is, you know, obviously we're doing this for production reasons to get this out as quickly as possible. The question is, is whether or not, you know, it makes any sense to do it at 4 p.m., you know, after the market closes. People can tell us in the comments if they think that that makes sense. Yeah, we read the comments very closely. It's where we get a lot of our ideas from and we get great suggestions from there. So please do let us know what you think. So you know, that's talking, all I had to say there. Yeah, yeah, you know, talking about things just to jump back a little bit, they're a little bit non-linear. You you make this the, the distinction, of, and I, and I was thinking about some of your you were talking about mortgage versus uh, rent, and it, it got me thinking about your ideas about spreads. A reading yesterday in credit write downs, you were talking about the distinction between high yield and investment grade, and what you think that trade looks like. And talking again of comments, we had some questions in the comments. What does that trade look like? How do you express it? And what's your view? And has it changed since you last spoke on that topic? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, it, there are different ways to express it for sure, because number one, um, you've already seen a massive move in LQD and, and HYG. Uh, and, and just, just for people who don't know what those are, could you just explain those? What so those are? They're ETFs, QD is for investment grade, and HYG is the ETF for high yield. Uh, so, you know, if you're getting the, you're basically getting uh, the, um, a, a bunch of bonds in your portfolio into an exchange-traded fund, uh, in one case high-yield bonds, in the other case investment grade. Now, the interesting bit, of course, as we know, is is that there's, there are different liquidity uh, requirements to the underlying asset. One of the problems with these uh, exchange-traded funds that I always have is what I call fake liquidity. That is, is, is that, you know, they're traded just like equities, but the underlying asset, HYG, 
uh, are, are the, the underlying asset of HYG doesn't trade at all practically. You know, most of these investors are putting it into their portfolio over a long term. They're not trading. So the concept that you could trade uh, and or there could be redemption out of HYG, you know, um, it, it doesn't make sense relative to the underlying. Suddenly you'll find out that there's no liquidity there. I irrespective, I think that in terms of that trade, that trade's already gone uh, because you've already seen a lot of risk. There's probably more downside still because of defaults to HYG in a second wave. So maybe now is the time to put that on. But another way to express it as an example is to think about triple Bs. Uh, I, I can't think of what the, the fund is, but there's a fund that, that deals with triple Bs because triple Bs fall outside the purview of the uh, Fed's stated liquidity mandates. So right. if a triple B becomes a fallen angel, then the Fed's not going to be buying that for liquidity purposes. That's going to be junk. And so a lot of these triple Bs, Kraft Heinz an example, American Airlines is another example, they've been downgraded. There are a lot of, of, of downgrades, fallen angels that we've seen already. And I think as this lockdown continues, of those, uh, I, I would certainly think that Carnival, even though way with uh, you know a a, 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 a junk like uh, rating uh, for their issuance, they're really actually rated B AA three. But I think that they could be downgraded as well. Yeah, and and just for context, for investment grade uh, of the three major rating agencies, everything above triple B on S and P and Fitch is considered investment grade, and it's uh, on on Moody's the, the the rating scale is is slightly different. It's uh, is it what's B double A B double A one I think is the right. One. Yeah, B double A is the equivalent of uh, of the triple B for uh, S and P and Fitch. And so, you know, uh, as an example, Carnival Corporation used to be A rated. Now they're uh, BAA rated, but they're not even just BAA uh, one. They're BAA three, which is, I think, the the lowest of the three is where they're rated right now. Yeah, it's actually it's actually triple B minus, I guess, is the bottom of S and P and Fitch, and and BAA three is the bottom of investment grade for Moody's. That's right. Yes. Why make something simple when you can make it? Good? <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, you know, to go back to what we were saying yesterday, uh, Carnival Corporation is a perfect example of um, how it works in, in real life. If you're waiting for the rating agency to do the downgrade, you've waited too long. Uh, the market is going to express the concern about a company and the yields, the spreads are going to widen out before the downgrade comes. So when it's trading like it's a double B credit, you have to think it could become a double B credit. Yeah, it's like the old cliche, when someone shows you who they are, believe them. And the same thing I said in terms of the way these are trading. Look, we found that out the hard way during uh, you know, the 2007, 2009 financial crisis, when the, when the downgrades came almost universally after the, they, they'd plunged and their credit worthiness had, had deteriorated massively. So that's, um, that's I guess, another thing for, for those of us who watch markets who are, who are you know, looking at this through that context to bear in mind. Definitely. So I saw, uh, you know, I saw another story. I know we like to try and end on a positive note, but this one was, was pretty striking. So there's a news positive. 
I, I wish it. I wish it could be. I really do. Um, but this, you know, this story really, really struck me. There's a there's a story coming out of South Korea that one of the big uh, one of the big news agencies, the Yonhap News Agency in South Korea, is reporting now that 51 uh, South Koreans who have recovered from coronavirus have again tested positive. Mm. Uh, and South Korean health experts believe that this was a case of viral reactivation and not reinfection, meaning this is something that has happened spontaneously. They've relapsed or the, the disease has become active again. Now, to give a little bit of context on this before it sounds like we're being too gloom and doom, this has happened to, I think the number is 51 people. That's out of about 10,000 confirmed positives in, in, the, in the country of South Korea. So you're looking at 0.5% or thereabouts. It's not something that um, that would be uh, something that you would think of as a, as, a, as a mass risk. But of course, we don't know the ultimate time horizon on how long it may take to reactivate. The, the news reports out of South Korea uh, reported that of uh, of those 51 people, that one has in fact died of the disease, which mm. you know suggests almost deductively that they recovered from it the first time, and then and then and then unfortunately uh, passed away when they were reactivated. So um, there's still, I guess the I guess the moral of the story, um, you know, aside from the aside from the human dimension and tragedy, is this is still very much a, a fluid, unstable, changing, uh, breaking story. And um, we really just don't know where the biology of this is going to end, right? I mean, we can look back on, on, on credit ratings and get some sense of context and try and draw a regression, but it's, it's really difficult when you're dealing with a problem that we've never seen before. You know, uh, I'm going to end on a good note by thinking Please. about that. Thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm going to go back to New Zealand. And I think that the, the answer is, for me, at a minimum, is, is, okay, you can do the measures up front. You can say, we're going to lock down early. Uh, but when you release, when you, when you get rid of the lockdown, I, and I think New Zealand is going to go there, and we've seen that in Denmark to a certain degree, you're going to do it in a judicious way, in a way that uh, means there's uh, less chance of this happening, and also means that there's still more testing that goes on. Uh, we know out of the UK and out of Italy, they're talking about uh, uh, people, the antibodies, having antibody tests so that we know that these people are much less likely to uh, be infectious to other people. So all right. of those things, we are we're getting the time now to learn about. I think that uh, many countries are going to use that time judiciously to make it better on the backside. I think that that's definitely the case in places like Denmark and New Zealand, and hopefully it will be that the case in many more other countries around the world. Yeah, you know, to end on a on a positive note, we were talking a little bit yesterday. I think it was offline about the the notion of passporting, of figuring out who has antibodies present, getting people back into the workforce. Obviously, trying to start the economy again is a is a crucial crucial point. Even though we're trying, you know, obviously to maximize the the uh, amount of 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 lives we can save. So the idea is that you could potentially go through and do it in an intelligent way. It's all dependent upon getting those tests and having them and being able to complete them more rapidly, so that you can. Figure out who's developed some immunity to the disease, who we can get back into the workforce. You know, hopefully that gives us a, a Goldilocks scenario, a best of both worlds, where you're protecting lives but restoring the economy at the same. Exactly, time. that's what we're looking for, and uh, the hope is, is is that you know that's what's going to happen in many more places than we think. Yeah, thanks for joining us again, Ed. Yeah, thanks. It's good talking to you as usual, Ash.
You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.